0: Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with writers in the studios of North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wiegman.
1: My guest today is an award-winning journalist and the author of five books. Joan Ryan's groundbreaking book, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, was named one of the top 100 sports books of all time by Sports Illustrated and one of the top 50 sports books of all time by The Guardian. Joan Ryan has been awarded 13 Associated Press Sports Editors Awards and the Edgar A. Poe Memorial Award for Journalistic Excellence from the White House Correspondents Association. Since 2008, Joan Ryan has been a media consultant with the San Francisco Giants. Her newest book takes a look at how we function within our own teams of colleagues, friends, and family. Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry, draws on a range of disciplines, including neuroscience, sociology, and psychology. Joan Ryan, welcome.
0: Thanks, Nancy. Great to be with you.
1: Well, now, I was curious, the title of your book, you use the word unlocking, intangibles, unlocking the science and soul of chemistry. How did you happen to choose that word in your title?
0: Well, that title, I'm going to tell you, it we went back and forth on that for years, actually. <laughs> my original, let's see, what was my original title? Was not Intangibles. And Intangibles, to be perfectly frank, was a total compromise. Um, as it happens, I really like it. I do think it, it works really well. But my original title, and then I'll get to the unlocking, um, was called The Clubhouse. And <laughs> very, very early on, I, my subtitle was a love story, (laughs) (laughs) but that was quite overused and my publisher hated it, you know, and hated the clubhouse too, because it sort of evoked this, you know, no girls allowed, or it could evoke like a golf clubhouse where it's very elitist. And um, so anyway, we ended up with intangibles and then unlocking, you know, it was trying to find that verb that said, um, this is an active book. Like there is something going to be happening in this book, which was the, the slow, um, well, hopefully not too slow when you're reading it, but for me, because it took 10 years to research this book, um, how I unearthed, how I, you know, um, found out what were my aha moments. So it was Sort of there was this mystery that needed to be unlocked and solved, and i couldn 't use solving because I haven 't um, you know I think in some ways as as deep as I think this book goes, and I think it goes deeper than um, anyone else really has about really studying team chemistry and also having the first hand experience of being in these clubhouses and with players um, I I know I've scratched the surface of really the dynamics of this incredible phenomenon of teen chemistry. So unlocking, I think, brought me as close as I could get to really capturing what a reader was going to experience when they read this book.
1: My guest is author Joan Ryan, and her book is Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. I could also see how, if you put the word clubhouse in the title, that that would rather limit your readers and thinking, oh, well, I'm not that big into sports, so this book doesn't pertain to me. Right. But reading your book, you to realize, oh, I am a team. My business, when I go to the office, my office mates, we're a team. And I think people can begin to see, oh, this stretches beyond people who are sports uh, colleagues, if I want to use that word.
0: Right. And, and that's why, you know, I, I had to make sure that science was in the title, because mm-hmm. that's what sets the book apart, is really understanding and answering the question, well, if team chemistry exists, and, and that's certainly a debate, particularly in sports and, and even maybe to a certain extent in business, you know, everything is about analytics. You know, we really believe that we can measure everything that's real, you know, everything that's of consequence, um, especially when it comes to sports and business. And analytics drive so much as it, as it should, but it doesn't tell the whole story. And so what sets this book apart is looking at, well, what Well, ironically, since I call the book intangibles, I mean, what is tangible about teen chemistry and what isn't tangible and also real and really exploring, you know, it's almost a philosophical thing, but, you know, exploring that idea of that not everything real is tangible, maybe the evidence of it, meaning, you know, I often say to the skeptics who are total analytics people, mostly guys <laughs> um, <laughs> saying, well, you know, do you love your wife? Okay. Yeah, of course I love my wife. Well, how much? Well, you know, I'd take a bullet for her. Okay. Well, but what number, you know, what, what does that mean that you take a bullet for her? And is that more than your neighbor? You know, would your neighbor, you know, jump on a grenade for her? Does that mean that that's so, you know, What's the number? And I said, Well, you can't put a number on it. He said, Exactly. But do you think that it's love is real? Wow, of course it's real. And do you think that by being married to this person? And this is especially true because no man is gonna say no to this question. Do you think your wife has improved you? (laughs) (laughs) And of course they say, Well, yeah, you know, I'm a better man for it. Okay. So, if that can be true, just in your own relationship, that you have seen tangible evidence, but immeasurable evidence, that this other human being has so, proud, so profoundly influenced you, that you have, you know, basically improved your performance. You know, which is basically what team chemistry is about. And I'm sure we'll get into that. But um, we know that then. It could happen to any two people. And if it could happen to any two people, could it happen to a group of three people and four people and 25 guys in a clubhouse or uh, 60 people in a workplace? Like, If it's true for two human beings, then it makes sense at least to pursue the idea that it's true for all human beings.
1: You know, sometimes I got the impression that some of these non-believers I'll call them you'd go in to interview some guy and he would say, no there's no such thing as team chemistry and yet the more you talk to this person (laughs) the more he would seem to come around to go golly maybe she's got something here even if they wouldn't want to admit it
0: right exactly because it's sort of it's a little too uh, mushy you know, and these are hard and fast, you know, I'm a tough guy, I do this. And, you know, this is just a myth people make up to just explain this phenomenon that people call team chemistry, but it doesn't really exist. And two things happen, exactly what you said, that when you take them down that path, you know, in a a very rational way, they can see it. It, You know, it's certainly the people that are at least open-minded enough to consider it. Um, They can see it, okay. And then the other path, uh, of the non-believers, um, is that they just call it something else. You mm-hmm. know, they call it that camaraderie. They call it, you know, this spirit in the clubhouse, um, uh, cohesion, all of that. But those, but what they really mean is team chemistry. But team chemistry has been so ill-defined that you know, I I understand a hundred percent why people dismiss it. Um, Because it's like, well, how does going out to dinner, you know, affect your batting average, right? You know, how does this affect that? And so what the book does is take you through, well, what is going on in our, you know, infinitely fascinating and um, poorly understood human brain? You know, I was, this is a little bit of an aside, but you know, I listened to those um, on my audiobooks, You know, I listened to the great courses. You know, I didn't have the greatest education in the world and I never studied philosophy. So I listened to all these philosophy ones. And we, um, there was one on Isaac Newton. And I'm listening to it. And, and an aside to an aside is that during the plague in the 1600s, when Isaac Newton was a student in England, um, he, he couldn't go to University for 18 months because of the plague. And during those 18 months, he um, discovered or uh, defined gravity, came up with the three laws of motion, and and, um, uh, uh, came up with the beginning of how light travels and what light is in 18 months. So, you know, all the people that have had this time off during the pandemic, I hope we're going to see some, some, you know, big revelations, but, but what he, um, kind of taught us, uh, oh, where was I say, I did such an aside that now I've lost myself in the, in the weeds. So we were, what path was I on Nancy? You well, know, uh, just as a, maybe it'll come back to
1: you because, uh, this brings to mind one of my favorite quotes by Nikola Tesla, who says, if you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Mm. And that came to mind as I was reading your book. Yeah, we're talking about this, this energy, this vibration among this particular group of people that right. people can't well, it's not real. I can't see it, therefore it right. must not be real. I right. can't measure it, therefore it must not be real.
0: Right. And oh, you were I saying about remember. speed of light. <laughs> yes, Right, and now I do remember that Isaac Newton you know basically started this whole idea in the 1600s that the entire um, physical universe could be s- uh, understood through mathematics, and, and thus also through, through physics, through mathematics and so since the 1600s, certainly you know the Western world. Has held on to that—that that everything can be measured and quantified, and it, it, to the point where you know from all of uh, the, the research and the um, understanding of the of the physical universe, you know Isaac Newton and his colleagues and Darwin and all the uh, was that um, we could that anything that couldn't be measured you know, as I mentioned before, wasn't real. And so we still cling to that. And, you know, after the 1600s, we got social physics thinking that how a community works, how a team works could also be measured. And we have, you know, found out that yes, there is a social science, there's a a psychological science, all of those things, but they're very different than measuring the physical universe. And so when I was doing all the research for this, and, and this is why I'm very open about the fact that, you know, I just scratched the surface of, of all of this, um, is that we are in the 1600s when it comes to how well we understand our brains. You know, we don't know, you know, what this energy is. You know, you use that you know, great word energy. You know, we don't know how exactly it's transmitted. From you to me, we know a lot about how it's transmitted, but we don't know everything about how it's transmitted. you know um, when we touch somebody and, and it's meaningful touch, you know all those things that go on in our brain that then in um, inform our mindset or change our mindset, change our motivation, um, change our sense of do I trust this person, do I not trust this person and it's just from trust uh, you know this trusting Um, touch that then releases these very tangible hormones in our brain that send these signals about all these, quote, intangibles that we then feel and can foster between two human beings.
1: After a break, I'll be back with my guest, Joan Ryan, author of Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Teen Chemistry. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wiegman. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. Joan Ryan researched unlocking the science and soul of team chemistry in her book Intangibles. And I, what came to mind for me when you say the word trust is, I once was in a position. Uh, the team was not a literally a sports team, but I was employed by a former um, 49er uh, football who was who coached by. Bill Walsh, Mm -hmm. and this was Jeff Stover, and he had played and won uh, three Super Bowls, and a rival of his offered me more money. He offered me the sun and the moon to change teams, so to speak, (laughs) and it was only tempting for a moment and I realized no money's not and my husband couldn't believe what you're going to turn that down uh turn down more money but you make this point in your book that's that's not it because I trusted Jeff Mm
0: -hmm. and I
1: stayed with him still after three decades because I trust this guy and you mentioned that in um in relationships for team members this matter totally
0: totally everything is about trust and we know I mean look at the military and I talk a lot about the military in this book and a terrific book for those who haven't read it is called Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal. And I was so, I learned so much from that book and was so inspired. I mean, it just fireworks going off in my brain as I'm reading about the military and and how it relates to sports and all and all teams. Um, that I flew across the country to interview Stanley McChrystal in person. I think I flew there one day and came back the next because it was, it was just so great to hear from the horse's mouth. And why the way, why does the military understand what is at the, really the core of my book, which is you start with trust And only when you have trust and this is what the military has understood for, you know, hundreds and hundreds for the since the first army, you know, they've understood this. If you establish trust amongst yourself in your team, your your platoon, whatever it is, only if you have trust, can you bond? You can't bond unless you have trust. And only if you bond, can you have real commitment to each other? And only when you get to that stage of team chemistry, really, once you get to the, you have total commitment, not to your own needs, um, your own, needs, um, your own um, uh, self-improvement, whatever it is, certainly not to money and not even to the ultimate goal, like soldiers, when they're out on the battlefield and they've, they're at this level of total commitment, trust, bonding, then total commitment, it is the only way a soldier in almost unbearable stress can perform at an incredibly high level. It's only this commitment to each other that keeps guys from running the other way and you know if you're only thinking about yourself you're going to run off that battlefield and say okay I'm saving myself I don't care what happens but I'm not going in, you know into that thing but they but they do because it's a 100% commitment to each other not to god and country you need motivation much closer at hand day to day to day than this goal that is Kind of amorphous and 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 sort of a long way away. Even the baseball players, you know, you're not fighting on that field every day to win the World Series you know, because heard- it's too far away. You can't hold on to that intangible day in and day out. It has to be the guy, you know. And I and just for your audience, I, I use guys and you know, but I mean men and women in sports and in business.
1: Well, the things you say in your book uh, uh, also coincide with what I have, when I've interviewed Vietnam vets, Mm -hmm. they say what you say in your book, the military has this, this, uh, uh, this allegiance to each other in their group. And like you say, it's not about God and country when they're on the battlefield, they they take a bullet, like you earlier said. You take a bullet for your your comrade in arms, and uh, and then when people try to say, well, we want to give you an award because that was so heroic, what you did was so heroic, you saved the life of your your fellow soldier or soldiers, and they they uh, they really don't want to be labeled hero for no. what they did. They just feel like that's something I had to do.
0: And how many beg to go back onto the battlefield after they've been wounded? Yes. Get me back That's, out so there. The rest Get of me us, back out there. Yeah.
1: The rest of us have a hard time believing that. But your book helps us understand that mentality.
0: And then when we understand the military and why they put such an emphasis in, in boot camp and in all their training on that trust, bonding, and commitment as much as on their technical skills of waging war, of performing in the war. Why do they do that? It is so that they can perform at a high level. And that helped me clarify when I was thinking about, well, what is team chemistry? And and to understand what team chemistry is, it's first I had to figure, what is the function of team chemistry? Like, you know, the function of a knife, is not to be sharp. The function of a knife is to cut, <laughs> however way it can cut, right? The function of team chemistry I ultimately landed on was to elevate performance. Because why even bother talking about team chemistry unless there is a, uh, a productivity that comes with it. So team chemistry doesn't make you win but it elevates your performance, which can be one and the same, or could be two different teams, two, um, two different things. And so team chemistry cannot manufacture talent. The talent on your team is the talent on your team. So you're not gonna win the World Series if you have no talent, no matter how great your team chemistry is. But you're a bet, you are the best version of your team you're making you're getting the very most out of that talent, and there's so- so many ways that this happens but but one is which I think is the very best line in the entire book, which some reason I buried in the book i, I mean i it was almost offhanded I put it in it and it and I just think, no, wait a minute, that should have been on the cover, probably, but it was. From Jake Peavy, and you may remember this, Nancy. So Jake Peavy, Cy Young Award winner, played for the Giants for a few years, um, you know, during the time that I've been working for them and was on the World Series team. And I asked Jake Peavy, knowing that the function of team chemistry is to elevate performance individually and as a team. So I asked Jake Peavy and he's anybody who has watched him him pitch and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, you know, he was that stomper and snorter on the, on the mound. And he just was a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time, just ferocity out there. And so I asked him, I said, so Jake, I can see how team chemistry, you know, can really help elevate the performance of guys who just don't give a hundred percent. But how does it help you? You, you? you know, you can't give more than 100%. And this is what he said that to me totally crystallizes how team chemistry operates. He said, and, and it goes to the, the military 100% too, it says, my teammates bring out a fight in me. I can't willingly summon for myself. And I thought, wow, that is really profound. And there is so much in the book that unpacks what all of that means. And it kind of goes back to what I said um, earlier on is that we can so profoundly affect one another without, without having to do anything, right? They are summoning you know, other people are summoning something from us, we can't willingly summon for ourselves. And some of that is, you know, summoning, as it turns out, is not exactly correct. And I've been thinking about this and thinking about this, a lot of this, because I keep reading about this. So, you know, some of this isn't even, (laughs) you know, this part, it really, well, it sort of is in the book. But And this goes to the time, and you may remember this from the book, Nancy, where I go to this uh, psychotherapist neuroscientist named Thomas Lewis, who wrote this this mind blowing book called A General Theory of Love. And I went to him because I I loved that book and he talks about relationships and how profoundly human beings affect one another. So I'm sitting there with him and saying, you know, he said, what was it he said? Um, Oh, no human is a whole on his or her own. We each have open loops. Only another person can complete. So I I went to interview him just because I wanted to know, well, what does that mean exactly? And so, you know, we had this nice conversation and, and I learned so much. And one of the things he said was, um, well, okay. He said, you know how sometimes you just feel funnier with other people. There may be friends that you just feel funnier with. And I said, Oh yeah, totally. I said, I'm not, you know, naturally a funny person, but I do have a couple of friends where I am genuinely funny when I'm with them, the back and forth. Or he said, well, sometimes you feel sharper or you feel more, uh, you know, just your, you go deeper with your thoughts. And, and I said, yeah, that's really interesting. I said, so are they tapping something in me that they only they can tap? And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, there is no you in the way you think there is. And I said, well, what do you mean there is no you? He said, there is only you in relationships. So they are not summoning something from you. They are creating something with you. So it is almost like I originally thought, well, you know, team chemistry is maybe like the periodic table that, you know, it's actually chemistry. And then I, you know, I dismissed that. And now after what he said to me, you know, now I think that it is a little little bit like chemistry in that, you know, all of us are these, you know, elements on the periodic table and that, one element isn't tapping into something in the other element and just bringing something out individually in that element. It's not changing that element. It's creating something new with the interaction between the two of them. And that's how we, that's what human beings do. You know, we're constantly, when we are in relationship, we are constantly creating this new thing. Thing in both of us. You know, when you're interacting with another human being, you both are changed in some subtle way that you may not even recognize. But once you understand this, I mean, I watch it happen all the time now. You know, I I can feel how I am shifting and changing a little bit in relationship with this other person because we're constantly picking up every nuance on their face. Tone of voice, even odor—I mean, everything about another person. Our brains are experts at reading, and, and you know, so quickly we can't even—we don't even notice it. And then our—and then their brains are perceiving everything about us, and we're both constantly just recalibrating to sort of fit with the the uh, messages and the um, the signals. We're picking up from the other person and we're recalibrating our own response. And there's just, it's the dance of human beings every moment of every day when we're with other people.
1: My guest is Joan Ryan. She's a media consultant for the San Francisco Giants. She's written a book, Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. And you make a point in your book, the essence of chemistry: one person elevating another. And I really like that quote because uh, I, I noticed among the people I know, I like to spend time with people who, who, if I want to say, their their energy elevates me and doesn't bring me down. Yeah. Um, and another a person you quote about the beauty of team sports, Kerr. The beauty of team sports—the energy generated by playing for each other—much more gratifying than playing for yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, we mentioned the military; that's very comes out in, in the military is very being very obvious.
0: Right, right. And and you know, one of the things I also noticed and have chapters on this is the influence we have on each other, as you say, can be. Positive or negative, you know, we pick up on each other's moods, and and we can change our mindsets, and and you know, we're very very um sensitive to all of that. And so, in my book, there's a, I write a whole chapter on this one baseball player named Johnny Gomes.
1: Oh, wasn't that a wonderful story, That's Johnny Gomes is. <laughs> Johnny Gumbs is because one of the quotes for him, uh, somebody says he can say things other people can't say, Mm. and guys are going to buy into it.
0: How important, how valuable is that person in a business or any team, right? That he is so trusted for a variety of reasons. He is so trusted because he's so trustworthy that he can say something to someone that would be a could be heard as a criticism but the receiver of that quote criticism doesn't take it as that because that teammate knows that Johnny's only intention is to elevate his performance he knows that Johnny's not going to tell me this unless it's something that's going to help me So that's why it's so important, you know, a message is important, but the messenger is also really important. But Johnny Gomes is this guy who grew up in a broken family in Petaluma, you know, was a decent player, never a great player, loved being part of a team. He loved that they all wore the same uniforms because he grew up poor and he'd go to school and he'd have different clothes, you know, the generic clothes and not all the brand name stuff. And he loved it when he got onto a team. So he'd always been, you know, he spent his whole life kind of recreating family for himself. And so he ends up, he gets to the major leagues, mostly because he works really hard and his team seemed to win. So he played for 11 years in the major leagues and a pattern emerged, even though he was a lifetime 242 hitter, which is very low, um, never was a star yet his teams won. So one, the best example of how over the years teammates and he, he did bop from team to team because his analytics weren't very good, you know, on on paper. He didn't look very good, but he'd bop from team to team because everybody knew he was, you know, what they call a good clubhouse guy, a good clubhouse presence. And he could swing the bat and, um, you know, he could play. Obviously, you don't get to the major leagues unless you can play, but, you know, he's never great. So in 2013, he lands on the Boston Red Sox, who had finished in last place the year before and had a terrible clubhouse, a lot of infighting, and the general manager needed to get rid of a lot of guys, br- assigned a lot of new guys. And first thing he looks at, of course, is can this person fit the role we need? Yes, okay. But he did look for higher, quote, character guys, good clubhouse guys too. That was secondary. So of course, Johnny Gomes lands on that team. Now, they get to the World Series. You know, they, they surprise a lot of people, get to the World Series. And now they're down two games to one against the St. Louis Cardinals. And for those of you who who follow baseball, you know that World Series is seven games, best of seven. So if the Boston Red Sox lose the next game, game four, they're down three games to one. And they have to win three straight games in order to win the World Series. And of course, the Cardinals only have to win one more. So that's a crucial game for them to even the score, even the series two to two, rather than go down 3-1. So John Farrell, who's the manager of the Boston Red Sox, he posts the lineup for game four. And as we all know, it immediately goes out to you know the entire universe and everybody knows who's in the lineup. Well, Johnny Gomes isn't in the lineup. And partly, you know, not to do too much inside baseball, but he was a platoon player. He played left field and he he played against left-handed pitchers because it's uh, right-handed batters against left-handed pitchers tend to do better. So he only played against left-handed pitcher. Well, the Cardinals had a right-handed pitcher in it that day. So of course he wasn't in the lineup and he had yet to get a hit in the World Series. And he had only gotten a few hits in the, entire, in the entire postseason. He was having an abysmal postseason. However, once the lineup was posted, the, uh, the leaders of the clubhouse, uh, Big Poppy and Dustin Pedroia and John Lester and Jake Peavy was on that team, they got together and they said, if we're going to win game four, we need Johnny Gomes in the lineup. So they march into the manager's office and basically stage a mutiny just hours before Game 4 of the 2013 World Series. And of course, the manager looks at them like they've got three heads. Like, no, this is my job to set the lineup, number one. Number two, Johnny Gomes has been awful. And number three, it's a uh, right handed pitcher. And they would not leave... The office until John Farrell changed the lineup. And suddenly one of the other players had lower back tightness and couldn't play, quote unquote, and the left fielder moved to right field and Johnny Gomes went into left field. And now this is a coincidence. I'm not going to say there's cause and effect here, but in game four, Johnny Gomes, <laughs> it's a three-run homer, to win the game by a run, and they go on to win the World Series. And when I interviewed players from that team, and, and you know, somebody had told me that off the record because that had never been made public before. One of the players said, we do play better with Johnny Gomes. You know, he, when he's on the field, just as Jake Peavy said, when he's on the field, we feel more of ourselves. And when I went to a neuroscientist, I took this story to a neuroscientist at UCSF, Josh Woolley. And I said, okay, is, where is the evidence that Johnny Gomes actually had an impact on the play of that team? And he kind of looked at me like, you know, why don't, and he said this, he says, why don't people believe their own eyes? And he said, Did they play better? And I said, well, yeah, they did play better. (laughs) He said, did they win? Oh, yeah, they did win. And he said, there's your scientific evidence of this because it happens over and over. And he said, this is the impact we humans have on other people. He's like the, well, what I call him in the book, he's the walking placebo You know, placebos actually work, why? Because our belief that they'll work, activate that part of our brain, let's say it's a pain relief thing, actually activate the part of our brain that stimulates pain relief. Because we believe it, our brain is going along with what we're believing. And the same is true if we think that Johnny Gomes on the field with us makes us better, he does make us better in that way. And I thought, okay. And here was a neuroscientist just shaking his head at me. Like, are you kidding? This is what science is. It's like, you know, it's the evidence of what we see and we don't want to believe what we see. <laughs> and, he, and he also brought in, he said, it's the Dumbo story. You know, Dumbo thought he could fly only because there was a quote magic feather. And of course there's no magic feather. He just believed it enough and he could fly.
1: We're going to take a short break, and I'll continue my conversation with media analyst for the San Francisco Giants, Joan Ryan. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, journalist Joan Ryan.
0: And who was the biggest super disruptor, you know, the Bay Area has ever known? And certainly as a sports columnist, I covered him, which is Barry Bonds, right? You know, he was on the top of everybody's list. Um, In fact, uh, Bleacher Report, an online um, sports site, which I don't even know if it's still around, but um, named him, you know, in the top 10 worst teammates of all time. So I go about, okay, I want to find out how he disrupted, you know, what was going on and, and, you know, what his teammates thought about, you know, him disrupting. because, you know, you know, and he just didn't even really interact that much with his team. And when he did, you know, he was, he was very caustic. And so I, Decide, okay, let's. So I interview, I want to interview him about really. I wanted to find out, well, what did team chemistry look like to him? Did he even believe in team chemistry? And if he did or didn't, you know, how did he view the team as a whole? Because he seemed like this guy off on his own, you know, on the island of misfit toys. And so, you know, I work at trying to get an interview with him. You know, he blows me off, blows me off. So in the meantime, I'm interviewing all his old teammates and they're like, no, he wasn't a disruptor because we all had our team chemistry and he was off by himself. So he didn't disrupt us. And, you know, we don't win anything without Barry Bonds. I mean, he's such a gifted player. He has, he, he delivers so much high productivity that, you know, you want him on your team, no matter what, anyway. And then to make matters worse, for seven years during Bonds' time at the Giants, another top 10 worst teammates of all time, according to Bleacher <laughs> Report, joins the team, Jeff Kent. So now you've got two of the top 10 of all time on the same team. Now, how can that possibly function? So after a year, and because I'm now, you know, I was working for the Giants and Bonds had come back to be like an ambassador, you know, like to help with, uh, you know, to work with the players on batting and, you know, to make appearances for sponsors and all of that. And so, you know, I'd run into him a lot and, you know, so we ended up building trust with each other. So he finally, after a year, agreed to sit down with me. And along around the same time, I sat down with Jeff Kent, um, who also was like a guest coach at spring training. So I sat down with Jeff Kent. And so what I got from both of them was, yes, they could not stand each other, (laughs) which you would think would be disruptive in a clubhouse of just 25 people. Yet, both of them said that they want, Jeff Kent said, there's nobody else I'd rather have on the field with me than Barry Bonds. And Barry Bonds said exactly the same thing about Jeff Kent, totally, totally separate. And I thought about that, and I said, and, and though they never won a World Series, they won, I mean, they were first in the division, I think first or second in the division every single year they were, they were together and um, went to the postseason quite often. So I thought, okay, well, what is going on here? You know, they had no chemistry whatsoever. They were the two biggest stars on that team. And why didn't it matter that they had no chemistry? And then I came to understand that they had incredible chemistry, but it was a different kind of chemistry. It wasn't the social emotional chemistry that 99.9% of human beings need in order to uh, trust, bond and commit. Um, They had what I call task chemistry. They had incredible chemistry on the field because they totally trusted each other on the field they really didn't have too much bonding, but they were totally committed to their craft and to winning. A hundred percent committed. And they knew the other guy, you know, was working his butt off every day to be the very best he could be when he got on the field. And I thought, wow, that explains a lot of my workplaces that I've been in. It's like, God, I can't stand this person. I'd never go out and have lunch with this person. But There's nobody else I want my team in trying to accomplish our shared purpose.
1: You know, you uh, include just interesting things in your book that uh, I I made a lot of notes, just quotes that I liked. Um, One thing that uh, is measurable uh, is testosterone levels before a home game or a road game. And, Mm -hmm. oh, so that's why having a home game gives the team an advantage and
0: what did they find right right that you so much everything that i wrote about in my book is uh can be traced back to caveman i mean we have <laughs> not changed very much at all and the testosterone you know starts really flowing because they are protecting their home turf this is their turf. They don't know that that's why their testosterone is surging. <laughs> I didn't know that, that you know, that, that's part of why their testosterone is surging. Like, this is our home field. These are our, this is our tribe. All those people in the stands, that's, those are our tribe. And we're going to make sure, you know, that nobody tramples on our ground here. You know, this is our territory and we're gonna defend it. You know, it also, well, you know, it all comes back to war <laughs> too, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sports but is then, this version know, of that.
1: You also mentioned that uh, Cirque du Soleil has a long practice of hiring. If they're going to hire, it's because they hire people from all over the world, yeah. but they've had a practice of hiring at least two people from a country.
0: Yep, right. You can't have the, the, the singlets because they don't have any, they don't have a tribe to find refuge in. And by that, I mean, yes, the whole team is a tribe because they're, you know, they have this shared purpose and they have to work together to do this. But you need, sometimes people think, oh God, that clubhouse is so clicky. You know, the Latin guys stay with the Latin guys, you know, the black guys stay with the black guys and the white guy, you know, all of that. Well, there's a reason for that, that can turn into a click, you know, but more times than not, It's the mini tribe that everybody needs. You know, let's say you're the only Latin American player on a team. Nobody else speaks Spanish. You know, you don't have anybody. Nobody understands your culture. You know, you really can't find like if something's going on in your life, you know what? Is there anybody else in that clubhouse that's truly going to get it? But if you have, you know, four or five, six, you know, players from Latin America, even if they're from different countries, they speak the same language, they have similar cultures, and so they can retreat and find real comfort and and understanding in that mini tribe. And the same thing with black players or with rookies. You know, rookies, if you're the only rookie in a on a clubhouse, you don't have anybody to like say, hey, you know, how do I do this? Have you heard anything about this? You're afraid to be yourself around the veterans because they're going to put you down or you're going to make some huge gaffe, you know, of the unwritten rules and all of that. And, you know, also if you're a, a fading veteran, you're like the only old guy on the team and you're kind of not what you used to be. It's nice if there's somebody else who kind of gets this stage in your playing career. So you need the big tribe, but you also need your little, your little tribes. And the workplace is the same thing. You know, you can't have like one guy in an office of women or one woman in office. You know, you, you do need people to understand who you are um, and where you came from in order to perform at your best.
1: Joan, we've been talking about teams of men and we don't have time to tell the story of a women's basketball team. Mm -hmm. But you open a chapter in a rather startling way, Tara Vanderveer, (laughs) you open the chapter with her smashing a set of drinking glasses in her place in Palo Alto. (laughs) But one thing that she did, she took her basketball team to the Georgia Dome to visualize the Olympics that were upcoming. And you make the point in your book our bodies deliver on what our mind believes,
0: yep, yeah. it kind of goes back to the the Johnny Gomes, and what Tara was trying to do, and, and Tara, for those of you who, who don 't know is the you know actually her team is number one, her Stanford team is number one right now, our women 's basketball team number one right now in the in the country, and she 's about to become the winningest coach of a women's basketball, uh, college basketball team in history. And in 1996, she coached the women's Olympic team. And they, all of them gave up their, uh, an entire year of their lives to train together. And what Tara did, and the, the Olympics was in Georgia, and the basketball court was going to be in the Georgia Dome. She took them in, they didn't know why they were going in, you know, take the bus from the hotel and let's go into the Georgia Dome." And she lined them all up. And then she opened a box that had the gold medal of uh, one of the players who had been in the Olympics before and now was trying again. And she played this video on the big screen of uh, Olympics past and all these moments of glory and, and you know heart stopping uh, victories. And then she went and placed the gold medal on each. Each person took, each uh, woman took a turn with the gold medal around their necks. And those women cried and hugged and really felt connected to each other. And they were carrying around these, I mean, Tara is, unbelievable, carrying around these huge binders you know, with all the plays, all their training, all their workouts, everything. And Tara had made a photograph of the Olympic gold medal and had them each put it on the front of the binder. Well, this is
1: such a a happy moment to end on, Joan. So let me remind people, thank you again, Joan. Thank you. Your book is entitled Intangibles. Unlocking the Science and Soul of Teen Chemistry.
0: Thanks, Nancy. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.